Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Voice of Reason Verbal Mentation Foundry of sorts. This is Benjamin Boyce, your host, and today's interview is with Reese McCavanaugh, no relation, I don't think, or maybe a strained relation going back through history, who is a British trans man who has recently entered into the discussion on trans rights issues. And Reese finds themselves or finds himself pitted between these two crashing forces of extreme trans rights activism and then the gender critical feminist backlash. And Reese is trying to lay out some sort of middle ground and is more or less hopeful about the work that they're attempting to do. So in this interview, we talk about his life and progression and desire for moderation in this issue and in other issues. And I think this is another good resource specifically for young women who are trying to sort out their own gender identity, as well as older people who are curious about this issue. And for, I guess, all of us to get a better grasp on what people who actually possess these identities um, feel and think about these things and that they do think about these things and don't want to usurp or it's not about all about power for all these people who basically most of them and there's not a lot of them but most of them i think and reese might agree with me just want to live their lives so here's reese mccavanaugh how's uh your internet lifestyle treating you oh mm. yeah um <laughs> i don't think i knew what i was getting into to be honest um I don't, I don't regret it, but I, it's it's draining. It's really draining. What did you get into? I thought, well, I'm just going to set uh, state a set of opinions that I thought might be popular. Like, you know, biology is real. <laughs> might be one. <laughs> um, and, you know, but also... I've been transitioning. I've been. It's been better. It's been helpful. I can't. I can't lie about that. So I can't lie about either thing. But, but this is where I'm at, and I'm looking at both sides, and both sides seem to be getting more and more extreme, like really extreme, and both are just shouting past each other, and it's really odd because when you think about their basic common aims, they're kind of the same. You no, know? like you want to live in the world authentically. Okay. Both 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 groups want that. Yeah. So. They just have different ways of going about it, but they're shouting hmm. past each other, and I think it's gotten a bit nasty now. Yeah, and so, so you stepped in hoping to facilitate communication between these two parties. And what would these two parties be, generally construed? I would say, well, in the context of being in the United Kingdom, there's the side that would get called TERFs, which is kind of a nasty name for them. But they're basically gender critical feminists who yeah. uh, don't uh, believe in gender identity, and then the trans activists uh, who really, really believe in gender identity. Um, 
And yeah, those are the two groups that are both getting more and more extreme as these things go on. Like you've now got trans activists talking about biologically female penises. Like you pointed that, you know, uh, think, engage brain. (laughs) And when you stepped out there, what kind of attention did you get? You expected to get I expected a little bit, yeah, but... My Twitter following went from 620 followers to it's now at 1,210 followers. That's just in the, in the last week. It's doubled, oh. yeah. That's just in within the course of a week. Yeah, my Twitter following's doubled in the course of a week. It's been a bit weird. Yeah. And why do you think that you're... What's your particular positionality in your identity and then your positionality within your opinion space? What are those two things? Um, they, they're a bit in flux. I mean, identity-wise, I would say now, um, I'm not, I'm not really viewing transition in in the sense of like something to, as an identity. It's more uh, an act that I am doing in order to exist in the world more comfortably. It's it's, um, I'm not, I'm not going around saying like I identify as a man. Like in terms of political discourse, that gets a bit strange because. I'm of the position at the moment now where I'm saying I think the best side to be on for both these sides that maybe both sides could listen to is trans men are trans men and trans women are trans women because there's different models of doing this. Um, Like, I don't know if you know Miranda Yardley, for instance, but she's in the UK and she's a gender critical trans woman. But her model is um, she's using, well, she's not even using she pronouns. She's going by he and saying, I, I'm a man. Uh, and that gets a lot of gender-critical people on her side. But then on the flip side, that really turns off a lot of trans people who are looking at her and wondering, whoa, what's going on there? You seem to have, like, imbibed a lot of self-hatred. They kind of, you know, they can't... It's a barrier. So I think somewhere in the middle where we're saying, look, trans men are trans men, trans women are trans women, is something that potentially both groups could get on board with so from the political standpoint that's where i'm at at the moment and because why think... is there resistance to that because well from the trans activist side i think they're really playing out their dysphoria within their activism like you really really want to believe that you actually are the opposite sex you really want to believe it and it's so painful so from that standpoint they just they're projecting that out into the world and they want the world to believe it too. And like nothing more than total and complete acceptance will ever be okay. But that's a psychological thing. And that's a, it's a kind of conceptualized dysphoria that they're playing out then onto the world. And that's not very healthy from the gender critical side. I think they're so fed up of things like biologically female penises that they've just reached a point now of like, no, I can't accept anything anymore. This is getting too completely ridiculous. Trans men are women, trans women are men, because they've just lost it now. And I can I can understand that, but I'd be looking hopefully more to find some sort of a middle ground on that, yeah. if we can, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Do you think that, that this could potentially be viewed as a process, like these emotions will eventually subside, or do you think it's just going to get more and more contentious? 
I don't see this getting better, I'll be honest. I see it getting worse. I see it getting worse because in terms of like on the on the systemic level, so um, like in, in our educational departments, what you have now are uh, educational courses for lecturers, for instance, at university to be uh, educated on trans issues from groups like uh, gyres, mermaids, um, gendered intelligence. And these are all groups that are really, really pushing through the idea of gender identity. So if you imagine that you're a gender critical feminist at a university and that's the kind of education you're getting, all you're going to do is like hit up back against that and get even more resentful and hateful because you're then being told how you have to think, not how you have to interact with students, but you're being told what to think about an issue. And if you don't think that way about an issue, you're a bigot. So I think that tension is producing a lot of very sort of resentful and nasty feelings. And that's not going to go away until we realise that on a societal level, we can't tell people what to think because um, it's totalitarian and it doesn't work. Um, and I don't think pushing through this process of like uh, hate speech is another one. I, d I think if you squash people's ability to speech, it doesn't make them less hateful. It makes them more resentful. Um, and it as well, what gets defined as hate speech is very interesting because you've seen a lot of trans activists, for instance, engage in things that I would describe as hate speech, like kill all turfs written on T-shirts and dice is scum and that's not hate speech but then um i am a lesbian and i am and i am attracted to females and, and don't want anything to do with a penis is hate speech when actually that shouldn't that just be a factual statement like yeah of course you're a lesbian why did that become controversial yeah it seems <laughs> like the inflation of racism is only power plus plus privilege and now offensive speech or hate speech is offensive speech or disagreement plus power and privilege. So if exactly. you if you can uh, define yourself as powerless and without privilege, even though you're gaining a bunch of power and privilege in doing this, and then speaking from a privileged position, you can be as hateful as you want. Um, yep. And that slippage or that that leapfrogging of the rhetoric from, uh, I guess we could say, the radical anti-racist. Uh, toolkit into the trans toolkit is now spilling over into women's rights and yes. is spilling over into women's sports. And um, men, on the other hand, don't seem that affected uh, at this point um, by this no, move. Yeah. I mean, not at the moment. No, because that's one of the things I would say. Uh, any men really seriously threatened by me in um, men's bathroom? Not especially. Um or in any men, man's space, really. I don't think they're threatened by that. Um, but when it gets really un uncomfortable with this, is take something, for instance, like a rape crisis centre, and say that you're a woman and you've been like really abused by a man. Really abused, and you're there away because you're seeking shelter away from men. And now we're saying that trans women are women, and you see someone who for all intents and purposes to you looks like a man in the rape shelter that you took shelter to get away from men from. And you now can't say anything about it because if you say anything about it, that's transphobic. Like th that's the level where we're at yet. And mm -hmm. that's when you're talking about a really seriously abused woman, like there's something not, something's going really wrong. There's something mm -hmm. going on here. That's not quite right, but people don't seem able to say anything because if they do they're bigoted 
and so I'm not, yeah. How did you land at this reasonable position? Where were you a uh, year ago or uh, in your journey thinking about this and then feeling uh, dysphoria and then? Yeah, I mean, a year ago I was in the same place in terms of like, I was politically in more or less the same place. Um, I was less open to listening to the turf side of it because what I had heard from them had been quite aggressive and I just thought, look, I'm just trying to live my life. I'm not trying to hurt anyone. Um, so that was a, their aggression, I think, was a barrier for me hearing their messages. When I put my message out on Twitter, what I got back, though, was a lot of messages from a lot of gender critical feminists that were really, really positive. Really positive. And so that made me think, this, you know, this must be a very broad church then. Hmm. Um, because clearly there are some people here who think that it's a bit more complicated than then, you know, the, the very extreme types who will say, oh, you know, trans women are all autogynophiles and they're all fetishists and this, that, the other. And uh, that side of it seems to be like a small minority, but it seems to be a small minority that's uh, getting a very loud microphone set up next to them. Um, so that distorts the way the whole thing's being viewed. And I'm not, I'm even not sure whether or not the same thing's going on with the trans activists, whether or not the very extreme trans activists are the ones having the microphone put in front of them because it's sensational and so the press is always going to want to sensationalize everything and show you the most extreme view in a way yeah we we blame the press but the press is just following our attention we, so. well yeah exactly i mean it's our fault too we want the the um interesting stories not the like the the nuance needs you know tends to get played out elsewhere so um but no, I mean, I'd say I've been having this conversation for with myself for a long time now. Back when I was in, back this is a while ago now, because bearing in mind I started transitioning when I was 19, I'm now 26. Um, back when I was in trans activist spaces, I was having a lot of arguments with trans activists who were making these sort of arguments about biology at the time. Uh, and it wasn't mainstream then, but it was very fringe at the time and now it's become very mainstream but back when it was very fringe i was arguing with them then like oh, okay um so i mean so, that's... so you've been down with biology the whole time exactly i've never not been down with biology um i'd say there was maybe one instance that when i very first started transitioning i went to through some very weird things with my dysphoria um where i did start making stupid arguments um, I wrote an entire blog piece about how my body wasn't any different to a male body because uh, males could have like gynecomastia and so on, and they can be could have been born without penises. And I'm looking back on this now and thinking that was mental. Why didn't anyone stop me and say like, no, that's not right? Um, once I started trying to think clearly about it, though, yeah, biology was real. So, and that's been the case I'd say since I was. I don't know, 2021. So for the most, okay. most of this journey, that's been my position. Yeah. It's odd. And this is probably a straw man that the people who are trying to deny biology are using hormones to aid them. In yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. In fact, I think that's when it clicked for me, actually, 
because I, these were feminist spaces as well. And so they started making arguments about testosterone and how it didn't really make much difference. A testosterone uh, didn't make much difference between a, a man and a woman. Um, and I, I thought, no, because I've watched like 100 potentially odd tutorial videos from trans men taking hormones and it makes them grow facial hair and it makes their voice drop and it makes them gain muscle so clearly testosterone has something to say about the physical side of these things i mean it, they were it's i think it's the whole court i don't know if you know cordelia fine but she wrote a book called testosterone's a myth hmm. and so it's the idea that testosterone has absolutely no role in whether or not a man um will become more masculine or engage in more sort of um masculine behaviors and this is kind of the uh, social constructionist exactly and and develop muscles and so on yeah and it's the social constructionist argument Hmm. um uh yeah i mean i'm the conceptual battle that i'm with in i am having with myself at the moment is i don't think gender is a social construct but the problem is I think if you want trans people to conceptualize their dysphoria differently, then gender critical thinking just like as a whole, like gender isn't real at all. That's probably the only way you're going to punch through that. Hmm. Um, because if you're really, really set into thinking that you're the opposite sex, the only way to punch through that is to say, well, there are, there are no differences between you and a man. Then you can start to think differently about it. And once you've punched through that, you get to the point where I'm at, which I'm now saying, well, no, there are differences between men and women. Clearly, I'm an outlier. And clearly, that made life uncomfortable for me. Mm-hmm. And it gave me psychological problems like gender dysphoria, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Did you? Would you mind uh, giving us a little bit of your story, specifically in the light of, I've been covering a lot about uh, teen transition that then uh, these teens desist. Uh, it's being called rapid onset gender dysphoria. And, um, so I just want to know like your point of view, uh, female to male and growing up, going through puberty and and what that was like for you. And where, where, where would you see your path being different if you were just now, uh, entering your teen years? Yeah, very different because bearing in mind when I grew up, I didn't even know that, um, I was born in 1993. Transgender was not a thing. Transsexual was not a thing. Um, I didn't even know that people could uh, make these sorts of decisions. So I'm not growing up in an environment where I'm bombarded with these messages about trans people this and trans people that and look at Laverne Cox and all of this. My only message was when, so I was 12 and I'm, I mean, starting from the very start of like being a child, um, I engaged in a lot of magical thinking as a child in that when I thought I would hit I didn't know it was called puberty, but the point at which you become a teenagery sort of person, um, I genuinely thought the problem would correct itself. I didn't think I would go through a female puberty. I thought I would go through a male one. I thought I would grow a penis. That was the magical thinking I was engaged in as a child. Uh, that didn't happen. Puberty was uh, was hell on earth. And I would say that at about 12, I started Googling, like, is it possible for a woman to become a man? And that, that's when I learned about transsexuals, because it was transsexuals then. So you're talking 2005, 2006, and it was still transsexual then. Um, 
And all the stories of transsexual were really quite tragic. And most of them were male to female. Um, most of it was, there were a few films out, like um, Breakfast at Pluto, um, Trans America, and a, a few others like that. But it was always male to female, and they were uh, sex workers or prostitutes or whatever term applies. And their life was quite tragic. Their family didn't talk to them anymore. Um, they were all quite lonely. They didn't have relationships. And so it, it didn't look like this wonderful magical thing where everything was nice and smiley to me it looked really tragic so the rest of my puberty i spent just trying to smash that down because that did not look like a good future what do you mean smash that down i like try to repress the gender dysphoria and just try and ignore the fact that it was there um because uh yeah no that didn't look like a happy smiley wonderful future for me that that looked dreadful when I reached the point when I was 19 I was still in school when I was at 19 because I had to go back and do another year for various reasons um I I reached a point of um I couldn't imagine my life as a woman anymore Hmm. um I was trying to imagine my future and finding it impossible um I took a pair of um I would also say at this point at 19, I was engaged in a fair amount of pretense. I wasn't gender non-conforming completely at that point. I was trying to conform to my gender and not doing a very good job of it. Um, So at that point, I took a pair of hair straighteners. um, I filled a sink full of water and I tried to electrocute myself with a pair of hair straighteners. This was my suicide attempt when I was 19. And then in the middle of a history lesson the next day, I just broke down into tears. Um, Obviously, that suicide attempt was not successful. It was painful, but it didn't work. Um, I I electrocuted myself, but it didn't kill me. Obviously, I'm here. Um, The next next day, no, I broke into tears in the middle of a history lesson. And that was when I came out to my uh, history teacher after the lesson had ended. She told me, go away for the rest of the lesson. And then the end of the lesson, come back. So I did. And that's when I told her. But my... What my conversation with her was, yeah, but isn't this dreadful? Isn't this awful? Like, nobody has a good life like this. How can I do this? Um, won't it just be, you know, kind of tragic? Yeah. Um, and her response was, well, yesterday I just read a... I'll never forget this. She said, yesterday I was just reading the newspaper and there was a transgender... I think she said transgender, actually. There was a, a transgender lawyer uh, in the newspaper so clearly some people have good lives and can can do that i'm not sure if she did say transgender this is talking like 2012 she might have done okay. anyway i mean that's kind of irrelevant but that's basically the whole shape of the journey that led to my transition um what what's been really quite difficult to psychologically unpack is that if i'm looking at this from a gender critical perspective rather than if I stop thinking of myself as a man trapped in a woman's body and I'm looking at this from like their gender critical perspective, then that's really dire, really, really dire. Because basically what it's saying is that life was so, so difficult for me as a woman that was non-conforming that I couldn't see any way out and that led to my suicide, like, or my attempted suicide like and 
that I find just zaps all the hope out of everything. Because hmm. uh, for me, transition was like, okay, I'm done with this. I'm punching my way through. I'm going to find another path. So it was a very um, empowering thing. Not necessarily a... Um, I think sometimes the gender-critical people will look at as trans men as victims of female gender ideology and and or some of them pretend, misogyny. Yeah, yeah. exactly all of this um and that might be true for some of them and clearly it is because detransitioners they they'll have this conversation but for me mm-hmm. no it's a different it seems different for you you brought up imagining life as a woman yeah but it seems like your gender dysphoria came from within uh, and mm. preceded it because you were a child when you first yeah. started experience it it preceded your sexual orientation perhaps yeah. it preceded uh your understanding of gender and your your understanding of like even let's just say like the patriarchal norms or the <laughs> sure. gender stereotypes i'm sure they're there um we're not blank slates but we're not not uh the other thing um yeah, but it, but it seems like there's a a core difference between not authentic gender dysphoria, but a something that precedes the culture that you're embedded yeah. in. It, it mm-hmm. seems like one of my good friends, who's also transgender, she uh, male to female, says that her theory or the theory that she quotes is that um, the brain didn't go through the conversion from y from x to y because we all start out as y and then we we go male um once that stuff kicks in and so one theory is that the kind of like the brain uh body uh argument is that somebody in your position for whatever reason the y uh kicked in or your brain masculinized when it shouldn't have yeah yeah there's probably hormonal things going on there um, in the... In utero. During, yeah, in yeah. utero. I would say so, yeah. Um, but and yeah, so you get... In, in, your, in, in your particular position of wanting to plug into the world as a man and to conform like your hormonal regimen to a more masculine conception... Um, that puts you in a different position than what's popularized because there's not a lot of that I've seen uh, female to males out there. Mm. Um, no, it's, it's rare. Yeah. Speaking up. And why do you think that it's rare and what makes you uh, one of those rare voices? <laughs> um, so it's, it's really difficult to have this conversation, but I do think socialization plays into it a little bit. In that trans women do take up a lot of the space in the trans conversations. Uh, and there's no way to say this without being hurtful, but is that because you were socialized male? Um, I think that's possibly something to consider. Um, the other thing I think about that I see a lot about a lot of trans men is that they really... Um, they, they kind of just want to live their lives and move on and like just you know get through life and so getting massively involved in a political conversation when really what you're trying to achieve is to live by stealth 
like it's not especially useful and it's much easier to live by stealth female to male because of the effects that testosterone has on a female body whereas the effects of estrogen for male to female is not as much so it's possible you may never live by stealth mm-hmm. if you're male to female it's like some do um but also some there are a few who don't so they're always trans women Whereas it's much, much easier for a female to male to just pass and live by stealth and go undercover and, and that be that. And then why are you getting yourself involved in this conversation, which is draining and like political and you just want to live your life and you can. And it could, in fact, exacerbate the problem that you're trying to manage, your, being yeah. your dysphoria. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I mean, that's part of the reason as well why I think potentially trans men are trans men, trans women are trans women is not an especially popular line with the with some people in the trans community, especially the old school transsexuals, because if you think about what they went through and how hard that must have been for them and really what they were just trying to do was just, you know, they didn't transition to become trans women. You know, they transitioned to become women and you're talking like some of them 40 odd years ago and it wasn't considered an issue then but the aim wasn't to become some political group so it's really it's a really um Hmm. it's there's a really there's a contradiction going on there because um the statement trans women are women has become political so that apolitical trans women are having to say trans women are trans women but to those old school transsexuals, the whole point was for it not to be political and for them to just move on and live their lives, and that was that. Yeah. Um, and so for them, they I don't think they can quite see what we're trying to do, like the newer generation of trans people are trying to do by positioning ourselves away from the idea that um, we were just transitioning to be who we were. <laughs> you know, they... But, you know, they went through their own thing, and I don't think this has to affect them. I think, you know, for them, it's, you know, they went through their stuff, and they can either be involved or not. That's up to them. There are a few of them. Um, At Blue Once talks a lot, you know, on Twitter, and Jenny Randall's too. Um, She talks a lot. There's a number of them that are speaking up because they've seen what's happened, and they're not happy. Yeah, I was thinking last night about the LGBT community as a community, as a branded community, as a community with uh, public perception and they got a flag. And then with that, with that just automatically starts accruing to that branding, that group, a tribalism and how stifling it must be to be technically in that group, but then have to uh, assume all this other action activity and, and ideology and, and behavior uh, that doesn't necessarily conform to your identity if it precedes it, if it's if it's true. Um, yeah. Yeah, and they're annoyed because, you know, like, as, as well, there are a number of places this went really wrong, but one of them where it went really stupidly wrong was you don't need dysphoria to be trans. When you did know? that come about and in what context was that? I think that's been an argument that's being, being made for the past two three years like i've seen it become way more popular now like yeah but you don't need any dysphoria to be transgender and i'm just like you want to wear whatever clothes you want to wear you do you that's fine but it's not the same thing yeah yeah 
Yeah, that that makes me wonder about um, me trying to wrestle in the beginning uh, with what is queer. There's this word that kind of popped on the scene, queer. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? It's like, it's not necessarily gay. It's not necessarily trans. <laughs> and I think even Peterson said it, it just seems like some sort of fashion statement, like this yeah. fashionable activity, which is fine and all, but it co-ops a lot of actual uh, yes. you know, biological issues and, and contradicts and eventually like kind of overtakes and further marginalizes this group that was there before the the fashion came around and had a lot of like genuine issues to to deal with um yeah um it's it's frustrating it's really frustrating i also think a lot of the arguments that the trans activists are making like they actively hurt us and they don't realize this so if i can give one example like with the gender recognition certificate and all of that, that you're then seen in law uh, as your new gender identity. That's fine up to a point. But where it's not fine is that under the NHS, which is our medical system in the UK, uh, all of my medical documents are now labelled male. That's a problem. Because that's yeah. not accurate. Um, and so when I'm ever I'm going into a medical space... Uh, here's another th- weird thing that happened, and I think it's a mixture of the Data Protection Act and the Equality Act, because you are not allowed to uh, disclose someone's gender reassignment status. And Even then in data- the context of a medical... Correct. Okay. And your data is very protected in that way, and so I think the Data Protection Act comes into it as well. So amongst the NHS, they can't disclose my gender, I, uh, my gender reassignment status, or the fact that I'm transgender, amongst different groups... This is what I've been told. So I have to tell every new medical professional my transgender status uh, if it's relevant, which in a medical setting, it almost always is. So, you know, they're they're not thinking properly uh, because they've now taken a set of actions which they thought were meant to help trans people that have now made my life uh, a lot more difficult than it had to be. Yeah, that's an extreme case of the uh, now we all have to say our... Uh, our pronouns, yeah, which kind of like causes people to actually focus on that, which the people who are dealing with that probably would be better off not having to confront <laughs> that every time they meet somebody. Exactly. Yeah. It, yeah. And plus with the medical thing, isn't that going to screw up research? Isn't that going to screw up data? Isn't that going to have yes. like a profound effect on furthering like our understanding of the human condition? So here's one effect it's had, which is that I now cannot get, um, NHS funding for a cervical cancer vaccine. Any other female my age would get funding, but I can't because I'm labelled male under the system. That's one way. I'm not eligible for breast screenings, even though I'm pre-top surgery, because I'm labelled male under the system. And even though there's a history of breast cancer in my family. So if I wanted to say, look, I've got a history of breast cancer in my family. I want to get a breast screening. I just want to be sure. Um, the primary care trust, which is the trust that runs funding for the NHS, would probably deny that, and I'd then probably have to go and fight them. Hmm. That's what the trans activists have created with this new system, under which I'm labelled male everywhere, even though there are places where uh, the fact that I'm biologically female is relevant for you know for things like breast screening, cervical cancer, uh, vaccinations, and all those things. It matters. Mm-hmm. Biology matters. So. You know, they're not thinking clearly. Mm-hmm. And 
that's one of the problems that I think ties into the whole postmodern critique or uh, queer theory and um, the murkier forms of feminism and the destruction of gender and the and self ID. If it's not based on some sort of clinical, objective understanding, if the theory is not plugged in, but is rather wrestling with it and calling it mean names like chauvinist or whatever, then once once the structure starts to get built, then it's going to start to wreak havoc across the entire system. Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, it's... um... (sighs) I mean, almost in some ways what... Uh, what this is going to make me really unpopular but what Donald Trump has suggested to do which is to put somewhere in law the suggestion that you would have your biological sex somewhere on some sort of document uh, just so we know which biological sex you are would almost be useful but you know how unpopular that would be amongst the trans Mm. activists Mm -hmm. violently unpopular even though I think that would be helpful and potentially solve a number of problems well, even over time, as um, maybe this will be self-corrected, but if it's not self-corrected, and then you have a bunch of uh, male bodies assigned female, and then they get into a coroner's office, then the studies on what was going on, <laughs> it'll delay like actually understanding this issue. And, and it seems like people don't want the ambiguity to go away. They, wanna, yeah. they want the ambiguity there. For a number of reasons, psychological reasons, popularity reasons, rhetorical reasons, gaining power reasons, or just, uh, you know, uh, having a a problem with the whole thing and being traumatic and working that out. Um, So it might be the the case that a lot of the kickback that you get, that that the trans rationalists get, that the the detrans people get is because we're stockpiling data that causes people to, like, have to admit that they're wrong. Or yeah. can't they can't play these play games, and that's probably uh, more mean than I than I mean it. No, no, they're playing societal games. Um, I'm, but I, the issue I have with the conversation is that I think people are forgetting um, that there's a there ha- is and there has been a lot of mental illness amongst um, trans-identified people. Um, so you're dealing with people who have had. A number of psychological issues, not just gender dysphoria, um, but depression and various other, you know, issues going on there. And I think uh, we need to have the ability to kind of hold them in some sort of compassion. So what I see from one side of this are people who want to be really, really compassionate. And so they'll go down that line the whole way. Affirmation because, is compassion. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Right. The entire, com- you know, the, they'll confirm everything because they can see the amount of pain that people have genuinely been in. Um, but then there's also the, you know, reality in the world that's going on here and the biological side of this. But what I see from the backlash to uh, the tra- all stuff trans is that people are not very good at being compassionate and remembering that people have, these are people who have been through a lot of issues. Um, So sometimes the backlash to the compassion looks very lacking in compassion. Yeah. And exacerbates the issue. Exactly. All the issues. Exactly. All of them. And I think that's another issue where we could do with finding some middle ground. Um, Obviously compassion is making people stupid. 
I think that's true. But then the backlash to the compassion is not very compassionate. Hmm. So somewhere in the middle of those two things, that would be a nice idea. <laughs> I don't know if that... It's, it, you know, it, it's it's just like, we just need to be more mature. We need to be more adult-like. Yes, and, and more reasonable and and careful about what we do. And I don't mean to make this too political, uh, but we have... Just recently, uh, Alexandria Cortez, uh, the uh, politician in, yes. from Brooklyn, uh, said this weird statement about moderates. Uh, she just started dissing <laughs> on moderates and, and how uh, only the radicals got their agenda across. And, and so we have the left uh, and the political establishment exacerbating this corrosion of discourse that has major ramifications in actually oh, yeah. seeing things clearly and then making wise decisions because it's not flashy and sexy and, and aggressive mm-hmm. enough or visionary enough. Yeah, no. Um... And it excuses a bunch of magical thinking and reverts us back to toddlers in a number of different ways, both with the tantrums and then the. Yeah. Yeah. And. Honestly, that's when when I really started thinking like I need to say something was the number of people that I saw saying, oh, this entire problem is completely fictional. Like your life wasn't that bad. You'd be fine. You should just go back. And the number of people who not a lot, but I did see some was saying like, we just need to defund transition. Because that just made me panic. I'm like, oh, what if? And I don't know why, because it's a bit it's a bit irrational, but it did make me panic because they don't have any of the power. But I thought if that's if that's what they're arguing, something's gone wrong. Okay. Uh, Because you're talking in the UK context, at at least anyway, uh, you're talking about left wing people who've been broadly supportive of every LGBT issue you can ever imagine, like from day one. So. it's different from the UK context and the US context because I think the backlash in the US is from the right, whereas in the UK the backlash has been from the left. Um, so I'm looking at this like, what's going on? Hmm. Um, and in fact, in the UK, I wouldn't say we really have a not a right wing in the sense of like Republicans really, because our Conservative Party is more like classical liberals. Um, like economically probably neoliberal, but they're fairly socially liberal, actually, the Conservative Party by and large. So mm-hmm. we don't have like, you know, I don't know if you guys even have like Bible thumping conservative people apart oh, yeah. from you do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We we don't really have that in the UK, I don't mm-hmm. think. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, there's Jacob Rees-Mogg, but his opinions are just his opinions. He doesn't want to impose them on anyone. So, so as you're... Anyway, as you're engaging, as you're engaging in this activity, um, I assume that you're you're seeing it probably affect you in a number of negative ways. And I wonder, I wonder if you have any thoughts on how can people engage in this in a way that doesn't exactly exhaust them uh, by uh, having them receive so much pressure or so much negative attention, um, but can still move the conversation towards a a place that you would like it to be. Explaining what my gender dysphoria was like to a number of people who were skeptical was really positive. 
it was really positive because I got a lot of really positive feedback like that's so difficult I'm so sorry you had to go through that and all of that but at the same time it was also emotionally draining okay. really draining so I would say don't do what I've been doing take breaks and like go and walk outside and get some fresh air and um, also try and I'm, I'm trying to hold people in as much compassion as I can in that you need to recognize that when people have a reaction to something, it's not coming from nowhere. It's coming from somewhere. So um, that can be exhausting. I would definitely say take breaks. And I would also say that if you want to put your, if you're going to put your personal life and your back history and all of that on the internet, um, then make sure that you know what you're doing because um, that's very personal stuff that's gone out there on the internet public. Anyone can read it. Uh, anyone can react to it and to respond to it. And they can also potentially question it um, and say, no, you're lying or not. You're lying. They can nitpick at different parts of it and say, well, that doesn't sound right. So you'd have to be, you have to be mm. like really certain that your experiences were what they were. And to be self-assured and confident enough to know that this is my story, I know what I'm talking about, and I'm going to say it, and people can reject it, they can accept it, and that's fine, and it won't affect me. Because if you're not of that mind, then having it picked apart is going to be really damaging. You know, one of the one of the most disadvantageous aspects of being a, a moderate is that you end up having to see the problems with both sides. And then scramble for solutions to both sides. And I wonder if one way of solving that is you just basically have to go back to that classical liberal viewpoint that we are not our identity. We're individuals. And so we have to treat each other with, I guess, basic good old, you know, compassion, love thy neighbor, um, ask people to calm down a little bit um, and just really kind of take a psychological point of view outside of the trenches, like actually like kind of levitate outside of the trenches um, in a way. And then you end up getting bombs throw at, thrown at you from both sides. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's really not an envious I, position. No. And as well, um, I'd say from the, I've spoken a lot about the reaction from gender crit side, from the trans activist side, the, um, the reactions are that I have imbibed a lot of self-hatred and that I seem to be engaging in a form of masochism um, with the gender crits by putting my life on show for them to see what, you know, is going on. Um, to potentially weaponize you. Yes, exactly. To use you as a mascot. To basically yeah. use you, yeah. Yeah, basically, yeah. Um, no, I'm their, I'm their token. That that kind of thing. Um, I, I've been blocked by a lot of trans activists. Um, they typically don't really engage, but when they do, that's been what the reaction's been. Um, and on a personal level, that's been the reaction from people I know who are personally pro-trans have seen what I've engaged in. They've been saying, you know, what are you doing? 
like um, I think you've internalized some transphobia. That was one. Do you think, could you compare the reaction of the people around you uh, witnessing you coming out as a reasonable voice um, with the reaction of the people around you coming out as somebody who is uh, transitioning into male? Yep. Um, Coming out as someone who's transitioning, that wasn't, um, the reactions to that were mostly like, we're not exactly surprised. are you okay? Um, I'm all need to move forward with this. My family had a really, my immediate family had a big struggle with me coming out when I was transitioning. That was a very, on a personal level though. Um, I think now what my family thinks about all this online stuff is why are you getting so involved online? Wasn't the idea to like, like move forward with your life and go undercover and like, um, what are you doing? Um, and I can understand why they think that. Um, but no, from like the friend based kind of reaction, the friends were all like, yeah, woohoo, you're really pro trans. And now with the reasonable voice stuff, they're like, uh, it, it, they're not, they're either a bit shifty or weird. Like, okay. Like it's amazing how simply saying something as simple as, um, do you think I could have said simple any, any more times? Saying something as simple as, like, well, obviously biological sex is real and, like, it has an effect. The reaction that I get from really pro-trans friends is like, whoa. But that shouldn't be that controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. like I, had, and I, had, I had a conversation, for instance, about trans women in sport, and I brought up Fallon Fox um, because... Uh, Fallon Fox got engaged in a fight where she uh, smashed a woman's skull in. Um, That's a very visual and very sort of, what's the word? Like it's it's a very um, real representation of trans women in sports and it's probably the most extreme one. Mm -hmm. So it's not one you should use as an example just for everything, but I think is that being the most extreme example you can use? But the, my friend's reaction to this was sort of like, that's just one example, and he kind of like glossed over it. And I'm like, no, but you're talking about a woman in A and E. Like she's in casualty now. That's not okay. Um. So I, but I think from his perspective, he just saw it as being compassionate, and I, I can't look at that and think. I, there's a disconnect there for me there must be some cognitive dissonance going on there because how are you looking at that and thinking that that's the compassionate view to come to? Mm-hmm. Is that it's okay for a trans woman to engage in mixed martial arts mm-hmm. and, you know, if the woman winds up in hospital with severe injuries, then she should try harder. That doesn't seem very compassionate or progressive from my point of view. It seems like the... I, I wonder if at one point biology was used as a uh, cover for bigotry or misconceptions of biology were used to discriminate against people specifically on this issue, specifically around gender and sex. Um, And so the left has needed to distance itself from biology uh, in order to establish uh, another form of argumentation in order to promulgate compassion, but they overreached. And then it's been, it's, that that whole gender thing has been now weaponized, and so there has to be like a a regress back into biology. 
with with another understanding that biology isn't necessarily um, it doesn't inform how we should treat an individual. Yeah, exactly. It's just yeah. another. It's just a very important way of understanding how that individual is built. And one of the conversations that I've had, which is where I wonder where this is, if this is where it's coming from, is um, that biology was used uh, along these lines for uh, race. Yes. And still is with, for, you know, for people like Stefan Molyneux, who's out there talking about IQ differences between Akanashi Jews and so on and all of that stuff. And um, they, so I think the left hears arguments about biology and they immediately track back to, yeah, but we made these arguments about how African-Americans were less intelligent than us using biology. And then they assume it's all the same thing, which clearly it's not. Hmm. Um so biology has been used in some really regressive ways in the past. Um, so they assume that this must be the same, but that's, it clearly isn't. That's really interesting. The I, I keep on running into this on multiple levels, um, but the conflation of racism with, I guess, transphobia, uh, which yeah. term is not the same. It's not even the same thing as racism. Uh but on the political side, on the activist side, on the argument side, and then probably even on the subconscious side, like you're talking about, is that it, the con, whoever's trying to slow down progress using science is tied to a long line of people mm-hmm. using fake science, bad science, to promulgate bigotry and, and probably even genocide. Yes, yeah. genocide. So we have to be really wary when people bring up biology into a political argument. Exactly. So that's their reaction that they're having now is, but we used biology to argue that, you know, uh, women were more, yeah, exactly. It's, you know, nearly every argument that that's been used. But Hmm. um, if you can't, I just, I just, if you can't see how this is different, um, maybe part of the problem is uh, a lack of broader scientific education just generally. Um, because anyone with even a basic understanding of biology should be able to understand how those things are not the same. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know what's going on in our educational system, but yeah, it's interesting. Cause I've seen one argument. I was arguing with somebody in my head yesterday, I think it was. And there's this one argument where whenever you bring up science, the progr- a certain slice of progressive activists, will always bring up all the bad science and completely skip over the fact that science is what disproved the bad science. So (laughs) science is how we know that that was bad science. And so you can't throw out science as a method. Um, But I understand that I understand the conflation of the is and the ought. And again, I think it keeps on coming back to um, taking out the trying to limit the amount of passion and discourse, trying to limit the amount of anger and an urgency and mm. needing to change right now, like really just kind of slowing down and, and reserving the political sphere or making more and more room in the political sphere for ways of building society uh, in a yeah. way that, that is more masterful and not just kind of slipshod. It's also weird because from the, like the political side of this, like if you're looking at gender identity politics, from a feminist point of view, the idea that 
someone has some sort of innate woman personality um, that they then need to, you know, release into the world um, is a little strange. And the idea of a gender spectrum ranging from G.I. Joe to Barbie, like from pink to blue, mm-hmm. it's also a little weird. So you have a lot of people that pre- previously would have been progressive that are now making a set of arguments that I actually, looking at this, don't think are that progressive. How so? Um, I guess it's the innate idea that, so for instance, you've got children now who are like male boys who are putting on lipstick and dresses, and you're immediately jumping to the conclusion that makes them women. Mm-hmm. Like, why can't a boy wear, uh, wear lipstick and, and put on a bit, a bit of makeup or wear a dress as a child, like most boys do? So, or, you know, a girl can't now suddenly can't uh, want to ride a bike and wear plaid without that suddenly making them a boy. Like, that doesn't seem that progressive, actually. That seems a bit backwards. So, like, from the gender politics side of this, it's really strange that you have a set of people who are making arguments that they're putting forward as really progressive, but um, I don't know. They just seem a bit backwards to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the other things that I noticed with the with transitioning children, why it made me nervous, was because back in sort of 2012, 2013, when I did transition and I was in the LGBT community a lot, I had a lot of conversations with gay and lesbian people who said, I experienced the exact same thing you did when I was growing up then I became a teenager or then I became an adult and like now I'm who I am and I'm comfortable and I'm fine with who I am, but I didn't transition. But I did have that feeling growing up. I did want to be the other sex, but they didn't transition. So when I started hearing all the stuff about transitioning children, I was just thinking like how many times have I had that conversation with gay men and with lesbian women that that's what they wanted to do. And wouldn't they have been, you know, if they had grown up like now, in society they would have been immediately transitioned would that have been the right thing and like when John Peterson's out there talking about like the NHS is going to get sued for medical malpractice in 20 years um, because you're going to have a number of kids who do not have sexual function potentially because when you're transitioning as a child is a whole different thing uh, they're not going to be fertile because you're going from puberty blockers straight on to cross sex hormones so you never become fertile in order to, you don't you never develop fertility then because your puberty's just been blocked mm-hmm. and then you've been put on cross sex hormones mm-hmm. um like what does that do to brain development as well exactly brain liver lungs all of these things no one's asking these questions and then in the UK recently a, a guy was putting forward a he wanted to research the transition and that was blocked by the university system um because it was transphobic and i'm there thinking yeah but hang on that would help trans people to know who this process would work for and who it wouldn't like we need to know about detransitioning it like and, and this is what i'm saying about all of these political mechanisms they're actually hurtful towards us they're not helpful like it would be intensely helpful for trans people to know what the set of criteria were that meant that the process of transition would work for you. That would be very useful. Yeah. So it's, it's gone a very bizarre, it's gone in a very bizarre direction at the moment. Yeah. 
Um, it, it's it's odd that these people who care so much are now willing to do so much harm in the name of care. And yeah. uh, ironically, speaking uh, from uh, Jonathan Haidt uh, informed view of moral compass, it's like this harm care valuation is the bedrock of their morality. And it's gotten so askew or so pumped up and livid that they can't, yeah. they can't, they can't look at that. And they'd rather cut off somebody's, cut off somebody's body parts than allow them to go through a rocky teenage year and yeah, perhaps exactly. give them like ther- therapy or access to different cognitive tools to deal yeah. with depression and, and like over uh, yes. suic- suicidal behavior. Yeah. It's like you take this hardcore physical intervention. Exactly. And the, the view is always like, yeah, but if you don't transition them, they'll commit suicide. And the really interesting thing is, is this, this always comes from trans people who transitioned as adults. So, like, work that one out. Hmm. You are here. You're an adult. You transitioned as an adult. You did not kill yourself. You, you sat in front of, you know, me, stood in front of me, whatever. So how can you make that argument when you know it's not true because you got through it? Was it easy? No. Did I spend a lot of my teenage years being suicidal? Yes. Um, would other coping mechanisms like just general mental health help and therapy and so on uh, would have helped? Um, and had I been in an environment where I potentially could have been slightly more open about what I was going through? Um, one of the women that I think is doing absolutely fantastic work at the moment, um, I, I don't know if I can remember her Twitter handle, but Inspired Teen Therapy. Yeah, I just and interviewed she, yeah. her. Oh, that'll go up later today. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. Because I think, no, she's doing fantastic work, I think, yeah. to help them and then, you know, see whether or not it's right for them, but at least you're exploring it uh, and not... What are some anyway. of the ways that you got through your teenage years then um methodologies or activities i would say that my coping mechanisms being a team were not very healthy or helpful uh in that i tended to live in my head um and i tended to be very introspective and then kind of like the way I coped with the world is that it was this outside weird ethereal thing that I didn't have much to do with. And I lived inside my head and I created my own world inside my head. Um, and that, it did kind of work, I guess. Um, when things got slightly better for me was when I started getting a bit more involved. Um, I got very involved in drama. I was uh, managing stage director and um, lighting director and, and all of that and started really getting involved with that that made me form a really strong group of friends who I'm still friends with now who were not out of the time. But when we left school, my enti- nearly my entire friendship group came out as gay or lesbian, which is funny <laughs> because um, when I was in school, I was out as a lesbian the entire process of my school years. Um, and then they came out later, and I'm like, you couldn't have been out whilst we were in school. Do you know how much simpler that would have been? <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. <laughs> I, I feel your pain. <laughs> anyway, but they did them, so, but, you know, they're all happy now. But no, that's about, I think, yeah, get involved a bit more with the, with things and people, and you, you can't necessarily live in your head and have hobbies and um, get out more and 
fresh air. It's good. Would you, and somebody in your position who's looking at like wanting to speak up, but then seeing what you're going through and seeing the amount of like uh, exposure that they need, they're going to have to put out there. Um, is really wary of like getting tangled up in a bunch of political fighting. Um, what do you, <coughs> what do you see as an alternative to that as uh, becoming a resource to young people, uh, becoming a, an example specifically for teens who are somewhere in that spectrum? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the trouble is we're so like engaged in these political battles right now that we're this like genuine people being undergoing genuine harm at the moment. We're not getting to them or discussing with them what's going on. Um, but it's hard to, it's kind of hard to tie it it's kind of hard to have that conversation away from the political argument because at the moment what the trans activists are pushing is like affirm, affirm, affirm. And then you have a lot of really, really pissed off parents who have got children with rapid onset gender dysphoria who are there saying like, we should never transition a child. Um, and this whole thing needs to be thrown in the bin. Hmm. And I entirely understand the ROGD parents um, point of view. Um, and why they're so angry. Um, but I mean, also the, the flip side of this is, you know, like I'm, I'm 26, I've never raised children. I've been having not a lot of emails, but I've had a couple of emails now from parents with children who have rapid onset gender dysphoria asking me genuine questions about what to do. And I'm here like, but I'm, I'm not a psychologist. Like, well, why are you asking me? What do I know? And just... All I can tell you is what would have been helpful for me at the time when I was a teen. I'm not sure that your teen is identical to me, but I can tell you what would have helped me. Maybe that will help them. Um, so that's what I've been doing. I've just been saying, like, don't try and like squash them into a box um, or try and make them conform because that makes you way, way more depressed than you mm -hmm. need to be. Uh, just try and let them... Uh, dress, act and perform in a manner that's like the most pleasing to them if that's possible and then if it's not for instance say at big family gatherings and stuff like that just be gentle about it and say look this is temporary um, we're going to go home later we're going to do something else like uh, you'll be able to do XYZ thing later that you want to do play Xbox whatever um, and but then I've also got like um, one of the mothers was asking me what about binding and stuff like that? And binding for a teenage um, for a teenage girl, even though she would like, I'm just gonna say teenage girl and she for just for the sake of the flow of this conversation, like that's that's a disturbing conversation to have because even if you're an adult doing it as a process, binding is uh, a health risk, and you need to be really careful. You need to be taking long deep breaths before you bind you could, should only bind for 12 hours and if you can't bind for any longer than that uh you need to make sure that you're looking after your back because it can cause you back problems um and make sure that your lung capacity doesn't get messed up and if you've got teenage girls engaging in that um hmm. you know you need to be really careful with it um so i was saying if you can the better thing would just be to wear sports bras which are slightly more comfortable but then not wear anything where you're wearing a bra where you're like pushing stuff up because that's really just 
you know, that messes okay, with yeah. your dysphoria a lot. Like, mm. if you're wearing a sports bra, it's supportive. It's not doing you lasting damage, um, but it's also not going to induce a lot of, like, what the hell are these things? Why are they here? Um, can't they go away? So kind of if, if you're cautious with binding, I can guess that you're even more cautious when it comes to hormones or puberty blocks. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, with I mean puberty blockers and that's just um the issue i have with puberty blockers um is that you don't develop your fertility process if you go on puberty blockers and then straight on to cross-sex hormones like if you ask any 13 year old do you want children their answer is always going to be no but they're 13 so you know no 13 year old wants to have children uh, you know, maybe one in like a million 13 year olds would say, yeah, I want kids, but no, most of them wouldn't. I've met a, a number of young girls who want a baby, but yeah, that's not necessarily want to produce the baby. It's just, they want to play mom. Yes, exactly. Um, if you're a bit more butch as well, and you're a teenage girl, um, especially if you're attracted to women, you're probably thinking, well, I'm not going to have my own children because how's that going to happen? Um, that would mean like inverto, you know, that would mean like an IVF process mm -hmm. and so on. And, and that's really expensive. If you're even thinking about IVF, which you're probably not. Mm -hmm. So, cause I never, I was always assuming, well, I'm attracted to women, um, female, I'm never going to have my own children. So I can imagine that a lot of these teenage girls will probably think the same thing. But then at the same time, like, lesbians are having children all the time. So in the UK, one of our politicians is called Ruth Davidson, and she's just carried her own child, and she's in a lesbian marriage. And so that that's a more common thing now. So if that was a pathway that you could have taken, and you were robbed of it because we pushed you towards medical decisions too early, then you're going to be really pissed off. Yeah, it's almost... It's like we're at a point right now where we, we're more accepting now than ever, I guess, since like Grecian times or Roman times yeah. about homosexuality, at least, and uh, yeah. being expressing yourself however you want. And at the same time, like that's still not enough. Mm. Or this narrative is being pushed that is not really helpful to like a kid like, oh, maybe I don't want to do that or I don't understand how that is. Yeah, because there must have been a... We've missed part of this process, right? Because I was... I I would say I was quite bullied at school okay. for being gender non-conforming and um, out as a lesbian, like, m immensely so. Um, I'm wondering at what point of the process did we get to where you weren't... You're at school, you weren't bullied for being gay, but also you weren't having people telling you that because you're a bit different, you must be the opposite sex. Like, there must have been a part of that process where that's where we were at, that's yeah. where we should have remained, hmm. but we just pushed past it because I don't even know why, I can't even figure that out yet. <laughs> I know, that's the question. <laughs> why? How did we get here? I don't know. Upsets me is that we've become so cynical that that we view meh or uh, 
or we view cynicism as an intellectually superior attitude. And we view ambition as youthful naivete. When we think about the greatest things we have ever accomplished,